Welcome to Wine with HR. I'm Jules. Hey there, I'm Trish. Lawyers turned HR professionals. Through our company, Monarch Endeavors, we guide employers through their oh shit moments with their employees. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most common (laughs) and commonly frustrating HR problems while enjoying our favorite adult beverage, wine. So sit back, grab a glass if you choose, and join us as we think about and drink about all things HR. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Wine with HR. We're so glad you've joined us or are just finding us for the first time. For those of you who were with us on episode nine, we are going to be continuing our legal episode this update. If you weren't, I highly recommend you running back and listening to that one real quick and then come on back here and join us. So we're going to talk about some of those new employment laws, some changes to some old employment laws, and then anticipated changes coming to a workplace near you. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Okay, quick disclaimer. We have to say this. This is not legal advice. We are not a law firm. There is no attorney-client privilege or relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Did I miss anything, Jules? (laughs) No, that's pretty much the gist of it. (laughs) I think we're going to need some more wine for this one. Uh, What do you think? For sure. Ah, for sure. Yes, yes. Well, what are you drinking? Uh, So I'm trying something new today. It's a type of wine called Viognet. Ooh. So it is French. It's white. um, And it is from the Rhone Valley of France, which is one of my favorite regions for wine. Uh, I haven't actually tasted it yet. I know, shocking. I've (laughs) I've usually had a few sips by now, but... It smells delightful. So uh, it says that it has hints of pineapple, peach, apricot with floral and citrus notes. And my uh, husband's little wine folly book says that it is best to pair with dishes flavored with almonds, citrus, stewed fruits, and aromatic herbs like Thai basil or tarragon. So let me give it a sip. Yes, please. Ooh. Hmm. That's very interesting. That's quite lovely. Uh, You can definitely taste the peach and the apricot. Really? I'm a little surprised by how much. And being somebody who tends to like things a little bit more citrusy, it's very smooth, though. Very smooth. Wow. Nice. Oh, and it's from uh, Klein Family Cellars. It's a 2022 vintage out of North Coast, California. What are you drinking, Trish? Well... It's cold and stormy here today, (laughs) and uh, I was working on some stuff, so I asked my wonderful husband to go to the store and grab me a Cabernet. Was not feeling a white today at all, and he came home with a Merlot, bless him, and not a problem (laughs) because as much as I'm not a big fan of Merlots, I appreciated his very, very sincere effort to get me something. So he got me um, something from Noble Vines. It's their 181 Merlot. And uh, I love the way it says, prized by kings and queens for centuries. Certain Noble Vine stocks have proven their excellence over time. So it says that they've taken the best of these and then um, created this 
wine that's reminiscent of the Bordeaux region of France. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. And so definitely, definitely can taste black cherry, vanilla. Um, again, I'm not a Merlot drinker, but uh, I think for those of you who do like Merlots, this could be right up your alley. Wonderful. I forgot to mention, Trish, that I today am drinking out of a glass that someone got me, one of my friends got me for uh, a birthday long ago that says, keep calm and pour me some wine. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I thought that was fitting for today's topic. <laughs> I definitely think we need that. <laughs> I'm drinking out of my Monarch Endeavors glass that's all fancy with my name on it. (laughs) Nice, nice. Okay, well, so let's uh, start getting into things. So again, today is another legal update, but today is more focused on laws rather than Supreme Court decisions. Uh, So we are going to be discussing changes to the I-9 form, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, the Pump Act, anticipated changes to the Fair Labor Standard Act exemption standards, an independent contractor rule update, uh, some rules and decisions from the National Labor Relations Board, and an EEOC update. Not necessarily in that order, but so we have a lot to cover. It's been a lot of activity in the employment (laughs) law world uh, in just the last few months and in the uh, months coming up. So uh, we're going to get you through all of this. Uh, One of the things I just wanted to point out is that many of the things that we're going to talk about today aren't in effect yet, but they are anticipated to go into effect soon. Some of them are already in effect. We'll tell you as we go through each thing. Uh, So the point is they are either very recent changes or things that are expected to change in the near future. And so if you know about them now, you can take steps to be prepared for when they roll out so you're not caught uh, seven steps behind everybody else and scrambling to get information. Uh, So that is why we thought it would be a good idea to bring you all the latest legal news in today's episode. Do you wanna add anything, Trish? Only that it's important for all of us to stay updated, but it's equally as important for you to share these updates and rule changes with your your C-suite or whoever it is that uh, you have those kind of discussions with, um, because they need to be updated as to the why you want to make these changes as well, so that they can understand and really lead from the top down. Perfect. Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, I will start us off with changes to the I-9 form. So this actually is already in effect. It uh, was released August 1st, uh, and it can be used immediately, although you can still use the prior form, which is dated October 19th, 2019, through October 31st of 2023. So you've got a couple months to make the adjustment. This is one change that is actually pretty good for employers. They have actually simplified the form. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. I just sent this update to some of the students in my courses. I was like, check it out. One page. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So for those of you who aren't overly familiar with this form, um, possibly some of our managers who are listening, uh, everybody, you've all probably filled one out because you have to uh, once you're employed. But the purpose of the I-9 is to very verify the identity and employment authorization of all people that are hired to work in the United States. 
that includes citizens and non-citizens. So they're just checking again to make sure that you're authorized to work in the United States. Um, so some of the things that the old I-9 form used to be kind of sticky about where you weren't allowed to uh, abbreviate things like if you were supposed to write Social Security Administration, you had to write out Social Security Administration and could potentially be fined if you didn't do so, even though they give you a, you know, two centimeter wide spot to write <laughs> all of that in. So um, now you can uh, abbreviate things. And I think one of the biggest updates, there's a bunch of them. I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, one of the biggest is that if you are signed up with E-Verify as an employer, you can now or continue to check documents remotely. So they had put that in uh, temporarily during COVID that all businesses, all employers were allowed to check documents remotely, but that is ending. That ended, I apologize, July 31st of this year. Uh, and so you would now have to start doing that in person. And a lot of employers got in trouble uh, with this because they would, you know, they had a remote worker someplace and they didn't have somebody physically inspect those documents, which is what you are required to do under the rules. So now this is only for those employers who are signed up with E-Verify. And in good standing. And in good standing. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you have to also watch a training video on how to spot fraud and documents and things like that. But you will be allowed to continue remotely checking and authenticating people's documents. So that's a really big bonus. So if you are not signed up for E-Verify, that's gonna be one of my tips a little bit later on. Uh, some of the other big things about the form is that it really took some of the sections that you only use occasionally and put them as supplements so you don't have to worry about them as much. So for example, there was one section that I think if I recall correctly, it was towards the bottom of page one. Uh, and it was for the preparer or translator certification. And you had to check if it was being completed by a preparer or a translator. And if you didn't check that again, you could get fined. <laughs> um, and they have realized, you know what, that doesn't apply in many, many cases. So they have moved that to a supplement and you only have to use it as needed. So there were a bunch of things like that that they have uh, made it easier. The other big thing is you can now fill it out. You can download it and use it as a fillable form so you don't have to print it off, write it, et cetera, et cetera. So you can actually do that and you can have people e-sign it. So those are all very, very good things. Did I miss anything, Trish? I was just trying to think. I cannot think of anything that you missed. Um, the only thing I would recommend to people is if you're wondering what abbreviations are acceptable, if you just Google like new I-9 form 2023, when you pull it up on the website, there's a, a hyperlink that takes you to the handbook for employee I-9 verification. At the very end of that, I, I was just trying to see if I could figure out where it was. I don't remember, but it's one of the uh, supplements at the end, and it gives you all of the abbreviations you're allowed to use. I made a separate PDF from that to keep on my computer so I wouldn't forget what they were. Nice, nice. Yeah. It looks like it's... Uh... 
It says, removed the abbreviations charts and relocated them to the M274. So I'm assuming that's, that's it. another That's the name of it. Is... document. Okay. But it's like a so, hundred and some pages, or at least yeah. the, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's warn people of this. It's like a hundred yeah. and some pages. So the um, section on remote document inspection is 4.5. For those of you who are very curious about that. And... Appendix A is where you will find the uh, approved, approved abbreviations. Cool. We can also put a link to uh, a document that has all those other links in the show notes for y'all. Great idea. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) All right. Um, Trish, you want to pop in with one of yours? Yeah, I think I want to start with the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So that was effective as of June 27th of this year, and it does apply to any employer who has 15 or more employees. And what it does is require our employers to provide reasonable accommodations to pregnant employees. Now, here's the thing. It's their known limitations related to pregnancy or childbirth. What we're talking about is kind of like, if you think about where the ADA ends, this is where I would say the PWFA begins. So we're talking about a reasonable accommodation, but we're not talking about that kind of an accommodation that rises to the level of a disability. The EEOC, by the way, just released, I think it, what day was it? It was last Friday. They said that they're actually going to put a rule out. So they have this proposed rule um, and you have until October 10th of 2023 to make comments on it. So if anyone has any questions about like definitions, what they think of as possible accommodations, they have wonderful examples there. And if you think they should add some, you can do your public comment. Um, So just, by the way, some examples that uh, we have found offering the ability to sit. So if you have a pregnant worker that works um, behind a cash register, give them a stool, right? Drink water, (laughs) Uh, providing a closer parking spot, uh, flexible work hours, or even work from home options. Let's talk about if someone has to wear a uniform. Can you please give them something that fits them appropriately? And the same thing with safety apparel, right? I have to stick in an aside. Oh, please. Uh, Do that for all women, because (laughs) I will tell you, most safety gear, I know this from all my OSHA inspections, and actually just had to wear a flame retardant one-piece suit. (laughs) They are not made for women. They're too long. They don't have hips. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're really not comfortable, which does create a safety hazard. So to uh, any safety clothing manufacturers out there, please get some female models, please. <laughs> and some That's pregnant amazing. female models, please. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> anyway, oh, sorry. No, I love it. That was amazing. Uh, some other quick examples Uh, provide additional break time to use the bathroom or eat or even rest, allow that employee to take leave or time off to recover from the childbirth. This is one I think a lot of people miss. Excuse the employee from strenuous activities or those that involve exposure to compounds that wouldn't be safe for the pregnancy. 
a couple of really interesting things here that I want people to understand is that oftentimes our employees think that, you know, while I, I can't take FMLA, I'm not eligible, so I need to work, right? I want to remind you guys, you cannot force a pregnant employee to take leave if there is some sort of an accommodation that you can give them to allow them to continue working. You have to provide them this reasonable accommodation. And I know you guys have heard this standard before, unless it would create an undue hardship, which in this case, and in most cases, (laughs) defined as a significant difficulty or expense for the employer. If you happen to live in a state uh, or even a locality that has greater protections than this, this doesn't replace them. Same with other federal laws, right? If you think about our pregnant workers, they're protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the ADA, the FMLA, but these all had gaps. And that is where the PWFA comes in. Yeah, Trish, can I just make a couple comments? Please. Um, So one, you mentioned FMLA. I want to make it clear to people that even if you don't offer FMLA or the employee is not eligible for FMLA, this Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, if you have over 15 employers, still applies to you as an employer. So again, if the employee needs time off or leave to recover from childbirth, then you have to give that to them. It doesn't have to be paid, but you do have to give that to them. And then the only other thing I wanted to point out is that this is a lesser undue hardship standard than the ADA. So it's not as stringent. So you're going to, again, have to make those reasonable accommodations more often under this than you might have to under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So just a couple of little side notes. I love that. <laughs> and for those of you who are wondering, it's like some of the basic tenants, something that fundamentally alters the nature or operation of your business or has a significant impact on your financial resources. So definitely a lighter standard. Um, and going back to the FMLA, Julie, you said something and it kind of reminded me of something else I read. Do you know that only 50 of employees are actually eligible for FMLA. Hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't require you to provide a reasonable accommodation if they want to work. That's where, again, this is this is such an important law. I'm really, really excited about this one. Again, EEOC is in the process of developing some regulations. Um, and hopefully uh, at the end of October, I'm guessing if, you know, 1010 is their deadline, we'll see something by the end of October, hopefully. Great. Yeah. So I want to talk about the Pump Act, too, but I think I'll wait until after you do another one. Okay, so we're going to flip on over to the Fair Labor Standards Act. So this one is not in place uh, and it's not even an inkling yet. It's a but it is anticipated that the Biden administration may be looking to raise this uh, salary threshold higher for those exemptions. So like the executive, administrative, professional, highly compensated employee, computer, IT people, and your salespeople, there are what we call white collar exemptions for all of those folks that allow you to pay them a salary versus having to pay them hourly with overtime. So those are the exemptions that we're talking about. Uh, Before Donald Trump was president, there was 
a movement to get that salary threshold increased up to $913 per week, which is $47,456 per year. Right now, it is at $684 per week, which is $35,568 per year. Uh, and that is a bit of an increase from what it historically has been, which was even lower. $23,660. So, yes, yes, thank you. So if the increase does go into effect, it's going to make more people eligible for overtime because that's the first test for meeting these exemptions is the person has to meet the salary threshold test, which means they have to make at least $684 per week, regardless of the quantity or quality of their work. So uh, then they also have what we call the duties tests and they have to meet those duties as well. So for each exemption, those are different. Um, there is some talk that those may be changing as well, which depending on how they're changed may not be a bad thing because they still tend to confuse people quite a bit. Definitely. <laughs> so it's not, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not always clear when somebody should be exempt or should not be exempt. And you can have people in the same job title or the same job position positions, some of who are exempt and some are some who are not, either because they don't meet, some of them meet the salary threshold, some of them don't, or because some of them meet the duties test and some of them don't. So the Fair Labor Standards Act, these exemptions can get very, very tricky. So I would always recommend that you talk to your employment counsel uh, before you make any huge decisions. <laughs> but I wanted to bring this up because it is a good idea uh, to have this in the back of your mind. And then I wanted to call particular attention to the highly compensated employees because we talked about this in our last uh, episode <laughs> yeah. when we were yes, talking we about the yes about the Helix Energy case. And again, that was an employee who was paid daily, and they found that he was entitled to overtime, even though he was a highly compensated employee. And so I just wanted to bring that up and go through those requirements really fast. So for a highly compensated employee to be exempt, they must perform office or non-manual work. So this is not for your people who are out in the field doing manual labor, regardless of how much they make. So, you know, there I know there are people that work on oil rigs that make a ton of money. But if they're out there actually doing the hard physical labor, it doesn't matter how much they make, they're not going to be, they're not going to fall under one of these exemptions. The total annual salary for a highly compensated employee has to meet uh, $107,432 or more. And that must include at least $684 per week Again, on a salary or fee basis, so that means regardless of the quality or quantity of their work, that it cannot fall below $684. And if I remember correctly, in the Helix case, he was not guaranteed that $684 every single week. That is correct. Which is why. Uh, see, I was listening to Trisha. You that was were. Case, but I, <laughs> I was listening. Um, and, and then the last thing is they must customarily and regularly perform at least one of the duties of an exempt executive, administrative, or professional employee. I'm not going to run through all of those. If you have questions about them, we'll put a link in the show notes to the fact page from the Department of Labor, which goes through all of these. Uh, but just again, keep in mind that uh, it may be increasing soon, that salary threshold. Love it. Good one. Back to you, Trish. 
<laughs> All right. So I'm going to take us back to pregnant workers <laughs> or those that have just given birth. I want to talk about the PUMP Act. It was actually signed into law at the end of last year, the 29th of December, but the remedies didn't go into effect until the end of April, so April 28th of this year. What it did is that the provisions that were added to the Fair Labor Standards Act for nursing mothers only impacted our non-exempts. So our exempt mothers, women, were left out in the wind, so to speak. So the PUMP Act actually extends that coverage to our exempt employees. And it says, hey, by the way, and this is really important for all of you that have exempt employees out there, uh, you cannot require those employees to make up for that time spent pumping. Goes right in line with what Julie was just talking about. Their salary cannot be subject to reduction of quality or quantity. It also, by the way, could be considered retaliation if you do. We are, once again, talking about employers who have 15 or more employees, and it does require you as the employer to provide a temporary or permanent private place for the purpose of allowing that employee to express the breast milk. By the way, not a bathroom. <laughs> Y'all don't eat in a bathroom, yeah. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. So yeah. why should the child, right? Yeah, right. Disgusting. We're, we're not going to even Not to go mention there. how hard it would be to even accomplish that feat oh, in good a Lord. bathroom stall. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for those that like have to pump or plug in their yeah. pump. Like, come on. Yeah. No. Yeah. So if you are an airline worker, um, you're considered one of the exempt transportation workers. So I do want to point that out. And you also have to, by the way, <laughs> give as many breaks as are necessary. Okay? If the breaks would be paid for your other employees, then these breaks would be paid as well. And I want to address remote employees because I think oftentimes our remote employees get left out. Please understand that your remote employees are entitled to take these same breaks on the same basis, just like they were working on site in your building. So they have a right then to be shielded from view during this pump break if you have any way that you can observe your employees. So if you have like video or security cameras, whatever the heck it might be, you can't look at that. They have to be protected from view during that time. And here's the other thing. Employees are required to notify you as the employer when you are not in compliance. At that point, you have 10 days to come into compliance. And if you don't, the employee can uh, do a lot of things. <laughs> One of the things uh, our employees can now recover back pay. They can get reinstatement, emotional distress damages, and punitive damages. So last thing I want to say is that the EEOC will enforce the PUMP Act, but the Department of Labor actually already provided guidance on enforcement and compliance back in May. Um, and we're going to put a copy of that letter in the show notes as well. We got lots in the show notes, so make <laughs> sure you check those out. That's going to be <laughs> we'll busy. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll give you shortcuts to all of this stuff. Uh, I was going to say something real quick. Oh, I was just going to say um, that I don't want people to think that we don't understand that it can be a challenge to provide some of these things. As I have uh, probably mentioned, I work with a lot of construction companies and on a lot of remote job sites where they have a job trailer. It can be a real challenge to figure out how to create a safe space for a woman to pump. I'm not saying that that gets them out of it or anything like that, but we understand that it can be really challenging. So if you are having trouble, again, feel free to reach out to either us or feel free to reach out to your um, council and see if you can get some tips for what you might be able to do uh, to make it safe for both the pregnant employee or the uh, employee who has give, recently given birth she wouldn't be pumping if she hadn't given birth. Sorry about that. Um, uh, <laughs> but that would make it comfortable for the employee and also comfortable for everybody else. Uh, so um, again, we understand it can be a challenge, but there are ways to make sure that everybody is comfortable in the situation. Love that. Okay. Uh, so I am going to switch to, uh, and I think I'm going to cover a couple because these two are a little bit shorter. So First, I want to make you aware of some increases to prevailing wage for construction workers. So I understand that this may not apply to everybody who's listening, but uh, we do have a lot of um, construction companies that we work with. So I want to make sure we talk about this. So the Department of Labor issued a final rule on August 8th, raising the prevailing wage standard for approximately 1 million construction workers under the Davis-Bacon Act. Basically, what this law does is it reinstates the 30% rule for determining a win a prevailing or what the prevailing wage should be. So for those of you who don't have to deal with prevailing wage, this is a great time to go refill that wine glass <laughs> you can, or, or to daydream, you can tune out. But for those of you who are involved, I briefly will tell you that uh, they went back to the three-step process uh, that was in effect, I want to say back in 1982. Don't quote me on that. But so there's a three-step process for figuring out prevailing wage. The first is any wage rate paid to a majority of workers. So that's number one. If you get that, you can stop. If, however, there isn't a majority that is paid the same wage, then you pay the wage rate paid to the greatest number of workers, provided it was paid to at least 30% of those workers. So that's the 30% rule. They got rid of that for a little while. Now they've put it back in. And if you can't meet that, then it's a weighted average rate. So I know that's all clear as mud, and I really can't help you on the calculations without knowing specifics, uh, but you should know that that three-part process is back in place. The other thing that the uh, updated rule did is it adds anti-retaliation provisions and it strengthens the Department of Labor's ability to withhold money from a federal contractor in order to pay employees their lost wages. So. Uh, again, the Davis-Bacon Act only applies to federal contractors, and um, in this particular case, it's construction workers. So again, be aware, August 8th is when that went into effect. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about real quick is the independent contractor rule. So the Department of Labor issued a proposed rule back in October of 2022, 
And in that proposed rule, they want to return to a totality of the circumstances test for identifying when somebody is an independent contractor versus when they are an employer. This is different than what was happening in the Trump era. So when Donald Trump was president, the rule focused on two primary factors. So A, the worker's control over the work and B, the worker's opportunity for profit or loss. And under those circumstances, because it was a bit broader, it was less likely you would find somebody was an employee and more likely you would find they were an uh, an independent contractor. Under the anticipated final rule, the focus will be pretty much ultimately whether in looking at the entire situation or again, the totality of the circumstances, that's the phrase, is the individual economically dependent on the employer or truly in business for themselves? So one quick test I like to use is if you have an employee who or an independent contractor that you work with that is doing uh, for you what you have employees doing, then that person is probably not an independent contractor. <laughs> They're probably an employee. The other thing is if they depend on you for all of their income, if you are the only person for whom they work, then they are probably not an independent <laughs> contractor. So just two really quick things, but it's going to be a little bit more lengthy than that. And it's going to go through a bunch of circumstances and it's going to be very situation specific. So again, just keep that in mind. Uh, That should be coming out sometime in, I would say, probably the next couple of months. Awesome. (laughs) Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. All right. I have a couple of, well, two quick ones as well. First one I want to talk about is paid data reporting. Uh, The EEOC is expected to push to resume that kind of reporting uh, for all and private employers. If you're going, what the heck in the world is paid data reporting? This was like an addition that the EEOC did. So the EEO1 data is something that the EEOC collects every single year. It's data on job categories, race, ethnicity, and gender. So if you have a business with 100 and more employees, and if or if you're a federal contractor, some federal contractors with at least 50 employees, uh, you may be required to fill one of these out. There's a little more to it. So please don't just look at that and, and quote me exactly. Um, but that's essentially what it is. And so the EEOC decided, hey, we want to get a little more information um, on the pay data. So back in 2017, they started collecting it. And then in 2019, they stopped. Now, I always thought it was because of COVID. Come to find out it's actually because they were getting complaints that it was too burdensome to collect. Uh, That doesn't seem to be flying anymore. So we are expecting them to begin this again. It really does go hand in hand with this pay transparency trend, uh, especially because we have seen, again, post-COVID, that pay discrepancy starting to grow, especially between like women or amongst women and 
marginalized communities. So I think that this is going to be a very important uh, bit of information. And um, I know it's going to be difficult, but I think it's really going to help. I think women uh, as of this year make, is it 82 cents to the dollar? And it just gets worse from there when you're talking about some of those communities. Uh, so just want to throw that out there for those of you who have to do the EEO1s. And I have one that may not relate to uh, a lot of you, but I think it's so interesting that I have to share it. Michigan ended marijuana screening. Well, mm-hmm. not exactly. <laughs> Everybody's like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, so July, the Civil Service Commission here in Michigan actually voted to partially lift that ban on hiring state employees who fail pre-employment drug screens if they fail for purposes of marijuana. So effective March 1st, what they're saying is if you are an office staff member or if you are in a position that doesn't require driving, operating heavy machinery, or even handling hazardous materials, you're not going to be subject to these tests anymore. Uh, They're also eliminating the ban on applicants who have previously failed drug testing for marijuana, um, because before, if they did, they weren't allowed to reapply with the state for three years. So that's gone. The reasoning behind all of this, in case anybody's wondering, is Since the residents, and this I thought was the key, the residents voted to make marijuana legal recreationally, not treating it like alcohol from a public policy standpoint actually just doesn't make any sense. Because if someone can go out and get drunk on Friday and you can't, right, you can't Monday morning go, oh, you're in trouble. The same thing is supposed to be said then for marijuana. That's the argument. Don't fight me on it. I'm just telling you what the public (laughs) policy (laughs) argument is, okay? (laughs) So they're still going to test for drugs like cocaine, amphetamines, PCP, and opiates. But please, everybody out there, remember opioid use disorder under the ADA. The employees, again, may also still be subject to testing if they're under the influence. Like if someone comes in and people are like, hmm, yeah, they can still be testing and tested at that point. The reason I mention this to all of you, even though it's just about Michigan, is that there are 23 states, Washington, D.C., and Guam. They have all legalized marijuana. And at least six of those states ban employers from discriminating against workers who actually use it recreationally. So you need to be aware of what's happening in your state and any potential changes. I also have to say this because this cracked me up. There are even federal agencies, including the military, who have recently, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like within the last few years, actually decreased what they're looking at too when it comes to marijuana. So like with the military, new recruits get a second chance if they fail the drug test. The CIA used to be one year. Now I think it's, is it three months? Hold on, let me just check. No, it's 90 days. Yeah, three months. (laughs) Hey, look at that. And then the (laughs) FBI went from three years to one year. Uh, So Loosen does not mean abandoned there. There's still this time that is required to refrain. But I just want to make everybody aware, especially with all of the other decisions coming down right now with the NLRB and DOL, you want to make sure that you are not uh, reaching too far. 
I think that's a really interesting space to watch. And I think it's uh, great that some states are trying some different things out because, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I have always talked about, and I I know I talk about this with clients all the time, but marijuana is a hard one because you can't test for current impairment, like other than reasonable, (laughs) right. Other than reasonable suspicion testing, they don't have a great test to say like your alcohol blood level is X right this second. Right. You know, with marijuana, there's always some wiggle room. It could be the last 10 days. It could be the last three months. And it's really hard to judge current impairment unless, as you were sort of alluding to, the person is acting very strangely or acting like they are uh, stoned. So (laughs) it it can be it can be really hard. And I could do a whole episode on cases that I have had where people got injured because they were or at least the argument was because (laughs) they were smoking marijuana. So um, there's all sorts of issues around that. So I think it's great that they're trying to figure out how to treat it now that it is becoming legal in so many states. Yeah. I mean, it, it opens up a lot of a lot of discussion for people like, yeah. where do you fall in that? And are you, you know, you and I always say we're not a really big fan of the like zero tolerance. But like, what about a case like that? You know? Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. Zero tolerance policies. We'll talk about those in another episode. <laughs> yes. Anyway. OK, I have two more that come from the National Labor Relations Board uh, and the last one, I'm so sorry to end on this. I should have I should have planned this better. But the last one is is definitely going to make you want to drink. Oh, I um, still so. have one more. So it's all <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, you'll, you'll end on a better one, yes. maybe. May and um, Okay. Yeah, okay. So the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and you may wonder why on earth we're talking about that, because not all of our listeners are uh, have unions at their workplace or are part of a union. But the National Labor Relations Act actually applies to all employers, regardless of whether there's union status. So there are a few exceptions. We're not going to go into those. But um, for the most part, it applies to all private employers uh, kind of across the board, regardless of whether you have a union or not. So it's important to know these things. So the first thing I want to talk about is the joint employer standard. So the National Labor Relations Board, which is the governing body that enforces the National Labor Relations Act, is expected to issue a new joint employer role in late August, so later this month or September. It is expected to look much like the proposed rule, which states that two or more employers will be considered a joint employer if they share or co-determine those matters governing employees' essential terms and conditions of employment. This is true even if one of the employers possesses only indirect or contractually reserved control. So what the heck does all of that mean? What that means is there are going to be a lot more cases of joint employer status. So all of you that use staffing agencies, Mm -hmm. all of you that use a PEO, Um, All of you who use any sort of third party administrator for like your staffing needs or or to handle the other sort of administrative tasks that go along with having employees, you are subject to this joint employer standard and you're probably going to be found to be a joint employer under this. So let's just take the staffing agency example. So if you get a certain number of your employees from a staffing agency. This happens a lot with manufacturing companies because they need large numbers of people. And so they'll get them from the staffing agency. They'll try them out for 90 days. And then, you know, the temp to perm kind of thing. Well, 
if they are a temporary employee through a staffing agency working at your place of business and they're there from eight to five every day, guess what? You're a joint employer. It does not matter. And this was actually true before this rule, but it's going to be even more true (laughs) now. Um, But it doesn't matter if the staffing agency is the one who pays them, the one who disciplines them, the one who does performance evaluations, the one who tracks FMLA. It doesn't matter. Uh, It is based on, again, who governs the employee's essential terms and conditions of employment and their safety, their supervision, their uh, working conditions, how often they get breaks, how many hours they have to work, all of that stuff is terms and conditions of employment. So uh, again, you're more likely to be found a joint employer under this new rule, which is set to be released and go into effect in late August or September. The last one I want to talk about, this is the, the super concerning one for employers. So this one is based off of a recent NLRA decision. So an administrative law judge, so those are the judges that work under the NLRB and decide cases dealing with, um, that are brought before the National Labor Relations Board. So an ALJ found that an employer had violated the National Labor Relations Act by maintaining certain rules for its employees that addressed personal conduct, conflicts of interest, and confidentiality of harassment complaints. The National Labor Relations Board announced a new standard for whether work rules such as those that were just mentioned would violate the National Labor Relations Act. Here is this new rule. If an employee could reasonably interpret the work rule to have a coercive meaning, then the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel will have met her burden to prove that the rule has a reasonable tendency to chill employees from exercising their rights under the National Labor Relations Act. I know there's a lot of legalese in there, but what this is basically saying is if an employee thinks or can make a case that a particular work rule would make them less likely to engage in concerted protected activity, which is their right to confer with one or more employees about the terms and conditions of their employment. So again, super broad, but again, if they want to talk wages or working conditions or supervision or safety or any of those things, they are allowed to do that. They've always been allowed to do that under the National Labor Relations Board. But what this new rule that the NLRB came out with and what came out of this decision is that if the employee can then say, but this policy that this employer has makes it even less likely that I would engage in concerted protected activity, then the NLRB is going to say, well, that policy is no good. You got to get rid of it. And and you will have been found to have violated the National Labor Relations Act. So to me, this is bonkers. Seriously. (laughs) It's just bonkers. And here here is my issue. Here is my issue with the National Labor Relations Board. It is so partisan based because no matter who is in office, they appoint people to these positions. And so it tends to be very partisan. And so it just swings wildly. And so if there's a Republican in office, then all of the regulations go down probably too far, you know, and they don't have as many rules and there's not as much oversight. And there probably are things they should be watching that they stop watching. But then as soon as it swings over to the Democrats, 
they issue rules like this that are so overreaching <laughs> that it, it, it makes it virtually impossible for employers to figure out what the heck they're supposed to do. Seriously. So this is what this comes down to. It further says that the employer's intent in maintaining the work rule is immaterial. (laughs) (laughs) The rule will be interpreted from the perspective of the employee who is subject to the policy. Well, of course, they're going to see it as having a chilling effect, right? Yeah. So it says from the perspective of the employee who is subject to the policy, economically dependent on the employer and contemplates engaging in protected concerted concerted activity. So basically every employee that works for you. If the general counsel can provide such proof, so the general counsel is the one who brings these, what they're called unfair labor practice charges before the National Labor, labor Relations Board, then the rule will be held presumptively unlawful. The employer can counter that, by proving that the rule advances a legitimate and substantial business interest and that the employer cannot advance that interest with a more narrowly tailored rule. So that's a pretty big standard. Yeah. Um, So if you're all sitting there like, oh, crap, what the heck do we do now? That's a great question. I'll have some tips for you in just a second. But I'm going to let Trisha get her last law in. (laughs) But wait, this may require. No, no, no. This may require an entire. Yeah, this may require an entire different podcast. But uh, what does this do to Apogee then? Does it not gut the finding in Apogee about confidentiality when required confidentiality. mm -hmm. uh, For those who are wondering, Apogee was a case that finally allowed the NLRB and the EEOC to mostly come into alignment on the belief that confidentiality can be required during ongoing investigations. It feels to me like this is just going to gut that decision. Potentially, yes. Holy Lord. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, because one of the policies at issue was confidentiality and harassment yeah. investigations. So, yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. So we may have to pick yep. this back up and, and. Yes. Wow. All right. We may need a whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have one last one and I know we're running late again, you guys. And I do promise you that. They're going to get fun again, right? For those of you who have just joined us, and you're like, good God, this is so boring. These are really, really fun episodes usually, but this stuff is so incredibly important that we have to discuss it. But we'll get back to this, the fun stuff starting, uh, hopefully, <laughs> I believe our next episode. So yes. last one, I want to talk about the diversity programs again. Uh, so in our last episode, I mentioned to you guys the Supreme Court's decision in the students versus fair admissions versus the presidents and fellows of Harvard College. So I'm going to just call it Harvard from here on out. We are expecting that because of that decision, the EEOC is going to issue some guidance and or regulations telling us on what the heck we can or cannot do with our DE&I programs. So remember, at the heart of that case was race conscious administration or admission programs at Harvard and UNC. And the court said that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. 
So when we're talking about affirmative action and we're talking about EEO laws, those are legally mandated. So we have to understand that those are legally mandated. I think actually the first time we saw it was under JFK. So like way back in the 1960s, this started. The idea behind affirmative action is that it's designed to help our disadvantaged groups find employment, get educated, obtain housing. So we are talking about the Civil Rights Act, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Rehabilitation Act, the ADA. Everybody is with me, right? (laughs) So these are all examples of affirmative action policies. So don't just automatically assume if you hear affirmative action, it's wrong or bad or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. If you look, though, when we're talking about workplaces that are focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, yes, of course, we want that to be part of our hiring practices. But really what we're looking at is an environment where everyone feels welcomed, they feel valued, and that their voice matters. So the companies that follow DEI uh, values have people with different backgrounds, but the people of those different backgrounds find a way to value each other and maybe even celebrate those differences, right? So each and every person then will feel like they can reach their full potential. So I give you guys all of that one more time because I want to remind you the importance of your DEI programs. The EEOC, I do believe, is going to tell us exactly uh, what we need to do. Um, but again, I think if you look at what they're intended to do, they don't contradict that ruling at all. Okay, so I have a few tips for you based on the uh, laws that I talked about or the rules, whatever they may be. Um, So my number one tip, this applies across the board, but is to subscribe to alerts from the Department of Labor, from the EEOC, from the NLRB, from all of them. Uh, If you are, particularly if you're an HR professional uh, and also plug for SHRM, I know we talk about SHRM all the time and we're not getting paid, although maybe we should reach out for a sponsorship to them (laughs) because we do talk about them all the time. But um, they, you know, that's where we get a lot of our information. But the EEOC, the Department of Labor, the Wage and Hour Division, you can sign up with all of them and get immediate notifications when something like a final rule is issued or when a big case has been decided and things like that. So I would suggest going on and subscribing to all of those newsletters. Also start using the new I-9 form. It's going to make your life easier. Yes. <laughs> uh, and subscribe to E-Verify if you have not done so already. Uh, with respect to the Fair Labor Standards Act, again, the new salary threshold has not been put into place, but we are sort of anticipating it maybe sometime in the near future. So it's not a bad idea to go through and identify which job positions may be impacted by a raise in the salary threshold. So, you know, if you have a position like project manager, for example, where there are varying degrees of experience, varying degrees of pay, that might be one where you're like, okay, this one might be impacted. So even if you can just identify the job titles, you'll have a jump start when and if that new salary threshold goes into place because you'll already have identified the ones you got to spend more time looking at. 
uh, with respect to the National Labor Relations Act and what we just talked about. Uh, review your policies and potentially include a statement either in the policy or separate documentation, if that makes more sense, as to why you believe they advance, this again is that language, they advance a legitimate and substantial business interest and why that interest cannot be advanced by a more tailored rule. So again, either do that right in the policy, so there's no question, or do that in a separate document that's maybe entitled reasoning for policies or something like that. Ooh, but you wanna have it like in it. writing because if you wait until an unfair labor practice charge is filed against you, and by the way, any employee can do that by going to the National Labor Relations Board. Um, if you wait until then to come up with your justification or your reasoning, and it's not written down before then, it's not gonna fly. If They're not gonna not use it. it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Exactly, yes. So you've probably heard us say that, but in the legal world, if it isn't documented, it didn't happen. So do it now uh, and don't wait on that. So those are my tips based on everything I talked about. Trish, what you got? Mine are just a little more general. When it comes to the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, again, remember, we're talking about reasonable accommodations. It's not going to be hard for an employee to say, hey, this was reasonable, right? We're talking about anything that any other worker would expect, someone who is similarly situated. So please understand that. When it comes to the PUMP Act, as many breaks as needed. Every woman is different. Every body is different. Every pregnancy and post-pregnancy is different. Don't think because you did it for one, you or you couldn't do it for one, you can't do it for others, right? It's an individualized assessment when you're doing these things. When it comes to diversity, DE&I, don't give up. Uh, these programs are so incredibly, incredibly important. And remember, we're talking about everything from men versus women. We're talking about sexuality. We're talking about uh, national origin. We're talking about socioeconomic status. So there's so, uh, education even. We're talking about so, so many different things. So these are incredibly important. Don't abandon them. Just try to remember to look at applying everything as, as fairly across your employment or your employment group as possible. And then following up on one of Julie's, um, I subscribe to all of the newsletters. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And HR Blogs. Um, I'm a really, really big fan of some HR blogs out there. Uh, I don't want to recommend any in particular at the moment, but I just, I really think that they're another great way to get yourself aware of what's happening. And then you can go do the fact digging for yourself. You don't just rely on what you hear, right? You go out and you kind of back up the information for yourself. So I think that's all I have. Wonderful. Okay, so. We hope that these legal updates have been helpful and uh, that they haven't completely depressed you. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot. But we hope they've given you a better, we've given you a better idea of how to handle some of the tricky issues that we've been talking about. As always, if you have questions or want to talk through a specific situation, feel free to contact us. 
or again, go to your legal counsel or your trusted HR advisor. But we are always here to help and our contact information can be found in the show notes with oh, everything else we said will be in there notes. this week. I know. <laughs> I want to make one last request if you're hearing this uh, before our next episode or actually for episodes in the future as well. We would love it if you emailed us with questions, questions you have about HR or about something that your company does. We know there are a lot of people out there listening who are not managers or HR professionals. And hey, we love having you here. So if you've got questions like, why do they do this? Or why can't HR do this for me? Or who the heck is HR actually protecting or serving? You know, like what's their purpose? We will be happy to answer those in future episodes. So please feel free to uh, send us any of your questions and of course, any wine recommendations. And speaking of wine, we got to come back and check. So Trish, uh, how's your Merlot, even though you're not a Merlot fan? <laughs> so um, I have actually enjoyed it. I Again, I'm not really a fan of Merlots, but uh, this has been surprisingly uh, helpful in getting through this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say it's supposed to be like from the Bordeaux region, so that right? might be why, because those so, are good. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 What about you? Well, sticking with the French theme, um, I'm enjoying this one even more. So it was funny when I was reading the wine folly, it said it, it described it as oily. And I thought, well, that's a really weird term for a wine. Yeah. But I understand what they mean because it is it's so smooth. It almost feels like it is a little bit oily so it just goes down that much smoother like Uh if you've ever (laughs) if you've ever uh i don't know why you would but i've i have done it if you've ever just taken a teaspoon of olive oil or something people do that for Uh, health benefits yeah Yeah. Yeah. um so (laughs) but that's kind of what it reminded me of it just sort of slides right out down your throat it's very lovely so um the taste is very it's light but rich if that makes sense. Like you can really taste all the flavors, nice. but it's not a heavy one. So awesome. I like it. <laughs> all right. So just a reminder, these have been a little bit longer episodes. They have been full of lots and lots of detail, updates to the law, potential updates, changes uh, in the way the NLRB sees things, the Labor Relations Board. Again, We get it, but we appreciate you being with us and we're going to uh, have some fun moving forward. These were so incredibly important that we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for sticking it out with us. Uh, Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already done so, tell your friends, tell your wine lovers. And again, send us wine recommendations and any questions or thoughts you might have. We appreciate you till next time. Cheers. Cheers.